excited to have Dave Hoffman and Tess Wilkinson-Ryan from Penn join us this week. And we have been wanting to talk to them in part because Me Too and I have been arguing and thinking over a question that we, we just haven't had any decent answers to in the context of the sovereign debt markets. And the question is basically this, is there a role that the duty of good faith and fair dealing should play in thinking about what kinds of behavior are appropriate during a a restructuring? And, And this is a a, a widely accepted a doctrine of contract law that plays a lot of important roles in a lot of contracting settings. But Me Too and I can't figure out what, if any, role it should play in the sovereign debt context that we often think about. And so uh, Tess and Dave are not only contracts gurus, but um, know as much about the duty of good faith and fair dealing as anyone and to benefit us all talk about these questions often in their podcast promises promises so we're hoping we can have a a conversation about this but also that we can kind of learn from uh, from their wisdom in the in a somewhat different contracting setting than me too and i are often thinking about so so dave and tess thank you so much for um for joining us yeah, thank you. I, I just to add um, to Mark's welcome uh, for any of our students who may listen to this podcast, and we usually hope that they listen, but I'm beginning to think maybe I should hope that they don't listen to this one because they, it is going to reveal how little uh, contract law I understand. But my uh, confusion about the duty of good faith. Uh, despite having listened to your uh, Promises, Promises uh, podcast on Nana Cooley and Jordan V, uh, not Jordan, uh, uh, the Cardozo case, Jacob and Youngs or Jacobs and Youngs, or I am uh, just utterly confused. Close enough for government work. Yeah. I am I, confused about sort of basic contours of this, whether it's, really a gap filler when parties don't negotiate specific provisions or is it just some amorphous, uh, you know, don't be opportunistic, uh, don't cheat other people. You know, I I think I have told my students uh, some years that it's really only if you don't explicitly negotiate something. And then other years I've said, Maybe when I was, you know, influenced by Cardozo too much that year. Uh, no, it's really just uh, anti-opportunism. So we're hoping you guys can uh, help clean up our confusion uh, today. And welcome. Yeah, that, that's not usually a thing we actually do, clean up confusion. I think our, our goal is to sort of just uh, say a lot of words and, and maybe provoke uh, you to say smart things. That was sort of our test and I's plan coming onto this was to throw most of the hard questions back to you. Um, but we're really, I'm personally super grateful to be here. I'm a, I'm a fan of the podcast, especially because you guys seem to know actual things about the world as opposed to what I do. Yeah, thank you. This is this is really fun. And um, yeah, I don't think dissipating confusion. I, I will say sometimes at the end of a conversation, I myself um, feel like I have had a lot of thoughts that I can now discard 
<laughs> I've said some things and realized why they're wrong. And that maybe that, maybe that helps. Um, so I was trying to think about these questions as we got ready for this podcast and me too. I, the, the way you frame the question is exactly the core of the, the heart of the matter for me. Like, is this, is the, is duty of good faith a gap filler or is it a sort of an affirmative duty? And, um, I don't know, would it be all right if I, if I, um, if we talked for a second about a case that, um, sort of shaped how, how I think about this. I mean, this is a case from Dave's case book. Um, um, that's not obviously in the um, sovereign debt context, but please, we don't have yes, to please. talk about anything sovereign debt, actually. I, I, um, we, the, you know, that's the context that the two of us feel the most comfortable with because we know a little bit about it. Mark obviously knows a lot more about other contexts, but I don't know anything else other than what I've learned from your podcast. So, yes, please. Actually, we don't have to talk about sovereign debt at all because our questions, I think, are just really basic questions about opportunism and explicit versus implicit language. And uh, yeah. we don't want to teach wrong things anymore. <laughs> no, wait. So, so there's this. So actually, this is perfect because uh, Dave and I have a tradition of, of one of us saying the facts of the case and the other one just sort of disagreeing with what the facts of the case are. So why don't I just we can just launch right into our um, normal. Perfect. Um, our normal, uh, sort of unhelpful, uh, repartee, but so, so the case that this case that um, I like for this question is, um, is called fortune versus national cash register. And it's about a salesman, uh, Orville fortune in the late 1960s, um, who basically is working for national cash register on commission. So he has, I think he has a base salary, but a lot of his, a lot of his income is derived from the commissions from selling people cash registers or deals for deliveries of cash registers. Um, and basically he has this, like, the details don't matter too much. He has sort of a complex, um, uh, um, sort of mm, structure for how he gets paid. Like he gets paid like, you know, 75% of the total commission. If it was in his territory at the time of, um, sealing the deal. And then he gets paid a hundred percent of the commission. If it was in his territory at the time he sealed the deal and the time they deliver the cash reg registers to the company. But so basically he'd been working there for quite a while like 20 years, I think, and was on a team that sold a bunch of cash registers to First National Bank of something. Um, and about a month later, he got a letter backdated, <laughs> backdated to the day after this deal had been made, essentially saying, actually, uh, you're fired. Um, Dave, do you want to no, no, so far, I just feel so bad for him. I mean, first of all, Orville Fortune could what a great be a name. name. Yeah, I know, right? Name. It's uh, such a great name. I just appreciate that he, yes. And I think, and obviously, as I've taught it, I often embellish the facts. Tess makes fun of me because she feels like I do method acting um, with respect to my understanding of the facts of these cases. And so this guy, you know, he has like a son who's about to go to college. I've always imagined that he has like holes in the bottom of his shoes by virtue of sort of doing all of the walking to visit all of these places to, to sell the thing. And so he finally comes home and he tells his 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 wife and his son, he's you know, like, like guys. I, yeah. I, yeah, it's very much with a woman. Exactly. And so I, I made it. I, the, the, my ship has come in. We're going to be able to go to Disney World, take each other on a trip for the first time, and you'll yeah, be able to go to college. So yeah, well, that's <laughs> unclear if he still wants to go to Disney World, but okay. I think I understand that listeners of, uh, are going to understand how our podcast goes. So, um, uh, and and then they fire him, but of course they don't really fire him. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they send him a letter, but they don't really quite mean it. Is that right, Tess? Yeah, well, because he calls his supervisor, who at one point says you're through. And then in the course of the phone calls, like, actually, 
we sort of do need someone on the ground who knows what's going on. And so they demote him. They demote him to sales support. Right. And they do then pay him some of his bonus yeah. for some period of time. Yeah. Uh, but, but at some point they cut him off and, and they cut him off and they say, you're now, now you're really fired. And they, and he's an at will employee and there's no uh, obvious sort of um, age claim that he gets to make because um, you know, it's um, it's in the sixties. So he doesn't get the same legal protections he would otherwise have. Um, and he, and he sues and basically says, you know, you, you can't use my the fact that I was at will employment to take away my right to this bonus, which I, and just to be clear, the bonus is only payable if he's still employed. And so he says, you know, there's a missing thing in the contract, the contract, my contract of employment says you can be firing for any reason, but it should have said, except you can't fire me to avoid paying me a bonus that I would right. have otherwise been due. Right. Um, he was he was on the sales team. That was when they made the deal. And so you can almost think of it as like, they have a sales team, they tell a sales team, you're gonna get a commit, you all get this commission if this goes through. And then they basically take one of the members of the team, they realize, oh, now we're paying, I'm, I, some, I'm embellishing these facts, but conceptually it works. <laughs> and they basically realize they're paying a commission to all these people, all these listed people. And then they tell some of the people, actually, you are just a support staff. And as support staff, you are not eligible as support staff. You're not a commission receiving person. So when the, at the time that the machines are delivered, you weren't like, you don't fulfill that clause. You're, you're not a salesman. You were not a sales, um, you weren't, you know, sort of an account salesman at the time that the uh, machines are delivered. And so I assume the employer is like, well, wait a minute, you're just trying to convert this at will relationship into something where you get some weird protection and in a way circumvent the express structure of the contract, right? Cause you agreed to take on this kind of payment risk, right? You yeah. deferred your payment and you're at will. So you just want to unwind the deal you struck. I mean, in fact, it's the court agrees with this. The court says, you know, it's clear that the contract itself reserved to the parties an explicit power to terminate the contract without cause on written notice. It's also clear that under the express terms, fortune, poor fortune has received all of the bonus commissions to which he's entitled. Thus, the, the employer says, look, we didn't breach the contract. We have no further liability. And then the court basically says, and this is a real Cardozo thing to say, according to a literal reading of the contract, the employer is correct. Um, which is another way to say the employers are correct. Um, you know, the contract does not give this right. And then the rest of the decision, the court kind of walks away from that and says, even though the contract says you have no right, we're going to imply a right um, because it would be bad faith under these circumstances to fire. And I think for many students, when they read this case, it's it's real tough. I mean, their intuitions are poor fortune, you know. Um, poor Orval, he, you know, especially after I built him up as this traveling salesman who finally had his ship come in, they want to be quite sympathetic, but they worry quite a bit about limiting principles, you know, under what circumstances, you know, sh surely this doesn't mean that, you know, no at-will employment can be terminated this way. And they haven't even been introduced the idea of sovereign debt contracts or sophisticated contracts between presumably people who are negotiating with the aid of lawyers um, to try to say like, well, should we be reading this kind of break into every deal? But the court here uh, certainly does. And, and Tess can sort of pick up the language on why they do. Well, so again actually, Tess, bef yeah. before you go, that um, one of the things that, I find so interesting. I think Mark and I, uh, when we tried to look up this case uh, recently in our adventures in good faith, we realized we had both read it 
in law school. Like this was taught in our law school classes, but we don't have it in our casebooks. And um, my memory of David Charney teaching this case was that he said, you know, it's possible that this case is all about the fact that there was some kind of profit sharing. And so, you know, maybe the court is saying, you know, in this unusual situation, uh, it's profit sharing. Uh, but also maybe it's like this big change in the law that um, for at will contracts where you have employees who are constantly being screwed, you know, we, we need to move away from that. So, uh, or is it just a, just a pure good faith case? So I guess, I guess, I guess it sort of depends on how we want to think about what the duty of good faith is doing in these deals. Um, and I kind of want to go back to your question from the beginning about whether or not we should think about good faith as a gap filler or good faith is sort of an affirmative duty. And you can imagine if you think if it's a, I think the work it does across contexts feels different to me depending on which thing you think it is. Now, of course, in employment law, I think generally we're, we're going to feel pretty good about implying in various kinds of affirmative duties. It happens all the time. But, and, and I think in this case, that's, that, like, in this case, that's what it looks like, right? It doesn't, look, it doesn't look like it's filling any gaps. The court says like, there's no gaps here. We see no, I think, I mean, that, that's your view, Dave, right? Like there's not, if the court's saying, I look, I look at the language and there's no gaps here. Um, and, and then the court says, look, we're going to basically let the jury see the evidence that there, that maybe this was, that maybe this termination was, was in bad faith. But I don't know, I guess I'm inclined, you know, I'm, I'm kind of inclined to think that this is about that good, that good faith has this kind of meaning, meaning across contexts and that courts really do think about this sort of anti-opportunism in, and it's not, so it's not just about sort of a, sort of a sort of, um, kicking at the at-will employment rule. But one of the reasons I was thinking about this recently is because I used to teach trust in the States. Um, and it was kind of fun teaching the trust po portion of the course, although I often didn't um, fully know what was going on. But, but the oftentimes in trusts, the language um, the, uh, the language of the trust instrument will say something like the trustee and his sole unbridled personal unconstrained discretion, I'll say all kinds of words like that can do the following things, you know, sort of decide how to distribute the funds or invest the money or whatever. And courts almost always say that's true, but you, but we still are, we are still um, sort of inscribing the bound, ascribing, I don't know what, you know, constraining the judgment. Like we say where the boundaries are, we say where the lines are for where you get to exercise that judgment. I don't know. I think I, don't, I thought that maybe was sort of what's happening here. Can I, can I um, so I think, I think about the duty of good faith maybe too simplistically, but as, as mostly or entirely about opportunism and the fact that it's just sort of impossible at the time of the contract to envision all the ways in which the parties might act opportunistically during the course of performance. And like the logic of the doctrine, whether you buy it or not, is that it's sort of good for courts to serve this kind of policing role, um, uh, you know, on account of that. But should should we be asking like, how easy was this risk to foresee? Like, when I when I what I struggle with in the Fortune case is like, this is a no brainer, right? You're an at will employee that you've deferred your compensation. And so um, if we don't have some objection to the contracting context or no defense to enforcement of the contract or something like that, should we just be asking ourselves, like, 
Could you realistically have foreseen this risk? And if so, you lose for not putting it into the contract or is that too reductive? So it's an interesting question. Um, and I, I want to make a connection to a bunch of cases I teach in another course as well, which just suggests uh, maybe the lack of coherence of the concept and that it sort of spreads across courses. So I teach corporate law and in corporate law cases, there's a whole series of shareholder agreement cases. Often you have um, sort of a minority shareholder who has a deal with the majority in which they have a sort of a uh, a right to participate in corporate governance, or they have a special right to, to cash out. And sometimes those shareholder agreements say, so long as you're an employee only. So you get to have these shareholder rights so long as you're an employee. And a very foreseeable risk is that you're not going to be an employee. And yet these dunces often fail to negotiate for employment protection at the same time as they've negotiated for shareholder protection, presumably because they went to the shareholder lawyer, not the employment lawyer, and the shareholder lawyer messed it up. And the shareholder lawyer also represented the deal for sure. So there's a real famous Seventh Circuit case called Jordan versus Phelps, Jordan and Duff versus Phelps between Posner and Easterbrook. There's a significantly less famous New York case called Ingalls versus Motor Lodge or something like that. And in both of these cases, you essentially say like, which wins? You know, the minority oppression doctrine, which says don't treat your shareholders badly, or the at-will employment doctrine, which says you can do anything for any reason. Um, and you can teach those cases as opportunism cases, but it actually doesn't really explain the doctrine. So the, the cases don't come out as saying you should have been able to predict this risk. And so therefore you're out of luck. Rather, you get this sort of sense, well, is there some sort of free floating duty that you, is, is non-contractable? a non-contractable duty not to oppress your counterparty. Um, and where does that duty come from? Well, in Jordan versus Phelps, it maybe comes from Jordan and Duff versus Phelps. It maybe comes from the securities law. Um, and Ingalls, it, it sort of seems to emanate from the public policy of the state of New York, um, at least in the dissent, the majority would totally let the person be exploitative. Um, and the, the, they just don't use the regular contract logic of, well, you could have foreseen it and the next case you will. Rather, and this is probably why Tess finds these cases attractive, they do come from this fiduciary perspective, like a non-delegable trust-based duty not to exploit. And you always sort of wonder, well, like how sophisticated would the parties have to get before you walk away from your fiduciary, you know, your fiduciary background duty? You know, here, Fortune's a sad sack guy. You could say it was foreseeable, but actually, like, if you think about how people ordinarily think and how likely it was for him to have been able to sort of uh, to negotiate and how likely conditional on negotiation would he have been able to get a lawyer to put it into writing? Well, you say, gosh, I don't care if you could have in theory foreseen this. We're not going to allow you to disclaim. I then sort of start going down like, well, you know, the Jordan case is a, a you know, a stockbroker case where he's he has enough money to hire a real lawyer. And and, you know, I start asking the class, gosh, why shouldn't we hold people to their promises? So um, this is, I really like it that you made the connection to the Duff and the Duff and the Phelps and the Jordan and all those people. Um, but I do remember that uh, Posner-Easterbrook uh, uh, debate. Uh, and I, I think I've always thought of that as this uh, discussion of competing principles. E either is it... Uh, employment at will. Uh, so I think Posner says employment at will equals, you can say so long sucker, I'm gonna cheat you, but you can't do anything about it. Or um, some fiduciary duty that comes from some, you know, state securities, blah, blah, uh, corporate 
whatever. Um, it's been a long time. Uh, and but so this get back, to, I think, to what Tess was saying. Uh, I think Easterbrook says to Posner and he even quotes from Posner's classic uh, book, Economic Analysis of the Law, which if I'm, you know, the story is like he wrote it when he was in law school or something like that. Um, and Easterbrook says, you know, you wrote here that all of contract law is about policing against opportunism. And that's you took that from your hero, Benjamin Cardozo and classic cases like Minard v. Salmon and the young and Jacob and whatever. Uh, and like here, what is this so long sucker? There's no law so long sucker. You, you yourself said the fundamental principle of contract law is uh, protecting against opportunism, protecting against the kinds of things that if we knew the other person was able to do, we would not enter into contracts with them. And, uh, you know, this gives me great insecurity that Posner himself, as Easterbrook points out, seems to be saying, no, if it's employment, I will. It's so long sucker. And I, as I read Tess, it's like, no, it's never so long sucker. Is that I, to, to, you've captured, I think, my fundamental confusion uh, I mean, about this. So, right. So I guess so. Like, look, I can say the things I would say would be different if I was speaking like normatively versus uh, descriptively, right? But so, one of the reasons that I don't find this case super troubling, the way that when um, students might like, what's the limiting principle here, is that on on, on a case like Fortune, um, is because I think that there are all kinds of cases in contracts especially employment, con look, employment contracts, right? They have this, they have this quality of everyone knows the parties are going to be like interacting with each other all the time. And there's going to be all these little violations and ways of like needling each other. And right. Because it's basically like you've sort of like formed a family and now you have all this like, okay. So the contract is always super incomplete. That was like a very unexpected move by Tess there, basically to say what? that all contracts are like families who are bickering. And I, I respect every single thing that just just happened. Just the... <laughs> you know that my like relationship with AT&T remain, remains very unfamiliar. <laughs> but, but this strikes me like, so, so what this opinion, what, a, what fortune does basically is it says like a jury can hear this question, right? This really, I mean, this is not, we're not the court's not saying yes, he's definitely, entitled to keep his job or whatever, right? Um, or entitled, entitled damages. Just as the jury can hear the question. And my reading of it has always been that the court's saying to the jury, would, would let the jury hear the question, did National Cash Register, which wanted actually to, which all things being equal, kind of preferred to keep employing um, Fortune, just change his job title in order to save themselves $20,000? And that strikes me as something that's a little bit closer to like the kinds of almost like we're almost like a harassment's not the right word, but the kinds of things you might do at work to like undermine someone in ways that get egregious enough that they're that it's obviously in violation of some sense that everyone is like there. It, it, it's not written into the contract that everybody has to like keep it together. But you, but that is, but I think with employment contracts, that is the idea, right? Is that you're not supposed to like, you know, you can imagine that every single day you show up to your office and every single day someone's taking your desk chair and put it seven floors away. And like, I think, you know, 
I'm not an employment law person. I take it that you some claim you could make there, but even if you couldn't, that's definitely a breach of the deal, right? Like we know that that's the thing you're not supposed, we know that they envisioned you weren't going to do that. It's the particular thing you're not allowed to, it's not that you can't fire somebody who's working on commission. And you can fire them for all kinds of reasons. You can't fire them specifically to like get yours. Not pay them. Although like what I'd say in this, so Tess has been building on this theory for some time. There, there isn't, if you're going to be that way, you have to be like way more explicit about it. Like if you're going to be that person who's going to continually yank the desk chair away from the employee or the person who is going to, you know, this is from Cardozo, like insist upon like obviously trivial defects in a really large construction project as a way of extorting like every last jot and tittle of the, the, you know, the compensation, you have to be like extremely clear. Hey, counterparty, I'm a jerk. You should know I'm a jerk. I plan to behave as a jerk. And like, you probably shouldn't do business with me. And if you are, you should charge a lot more money up front. And there's kind of a sense that um, no one expects other parties to behave in this extraordinarily unreasonable way. And, and you have to be um, super upfront and disclose your evil motivation. And since no one really wants to do that, it's just a way of cabining, it's a way of cabining the behavior in the first instance. And I, 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 so one way to read the case is that I think the other way to read the case, which I, I tend to teach it as is like, just who decides. And so, you know, there's just a real strong sense that many good faith cases are just, does the judge get to decide this is not a plausible reading or does the jury get to decide or the fact finder get to decide it's not a plausible reading? And um, since so much of litigation really is a who decides question, um, you can see, you know, especially New York courts sort of refusal to read good faith as simply New York courts saying we don't trust juries to be making interpretive decisions about the outer limits of these contracts. And we don't want juries to be able to um, imply fairly imply even breaks on the abilities of parties to behave in jerky ways to each other, because we just think that the jury's common sense intuitions about justice don't match how people behave in the commercial sphere. And, and that might be true. Like it might be that in, in sort of in, in highly negotiated commercial contexts, there's just a lot more jerkiness permitted. Um, that, like ordinar ordinarily people understand you're allowed to behave in really bad ways to your counterparties because that's sort of what's done. Now, I don't know if that's actually true, but that's how I've always understood sort of the duty of good faith is sort of a, a judge jury policing function. Well, maybe this, this is a good point to take a break, but it also might be a good point. I don't, we can talk about anything people want, but I, this seems to me, this triggers some interest in another Posner case, the Market Street Associates case, which is like raises that who decides question for me in a really sort of significant way. So let's take a short break and, and we'll come back. For our second half, I want to start by something that one of our prior guests, a big time investor in the markets, said to us with great frustration about lawyers. And I, it, it sort of struck us because he was talking, you know, was talking about us, I think. And, and he said, you know, I help design these contracts. Uh, he's one of the people that is in the room often when boilerplate terms are uh, designed uh, for the markets that we look at. And he said, I help design these contracts. And everybody in the room kind of knows what the, the goal of the contract is. And I think in the, the context of this particular contract, Mark was in the room, a part of the sort of the the drafting committee. 
And he said, then lawyers get their hands on it when there's some kind of dispute. And we know what the contract was meant to do, but the lawyers, they treat it like it's Harry Houdini trying to get out of some box. And they read it in these completely convoluted ways that everybody knows it was not meant to be read. And that seems to be okay with you lawyers. And um, this has puzzled me. And I, I think, Tess, please correct me. I think Tess said, no, you, that's not what law, lawyers are not allowed to do that. Um, that violates the duty of good faith. Or may, maybe she, I think she invoked Nana Cooley. Uh, uh, well, wait, can I but that, that could be wrong. Tess, I might be completely misremembering. But his sense was that, these, that what lawyers do when disputes arise in reading the contracts really carefully to find gaps uh, and uh, loopholes is really just, just jerky. And, uh, and um, is that bad faith or that's just what we do as lawyers? That's good faith. That's what we're paid to do. Well, can I ask? Wait, what is going to, maybe there's a really easy answer to my question, um, but why do you even have to get to bad faith there? Like, why isn't that just an interpretive question where language is, is it because the language is so explicit? Sorry, Mark. No, it's because it's because deals only get done because people I'm, I am inverting the this investor's concern in a way that I think is equally plausible as a descriptive claim. Deals only get done because people choose to overlook all the things they have not agreed on. And then so is it just that lawyers are picking at the gaps that are, in a sense, necessarily there? So you don't think that the like the core of the claim is everybody knew. Like they maybe they're saying everybody knew. That's so that that's a thing that people say because they don't like litigation. If the world was that everybody knew, then you're right. This is an easy case interpretively, I think. Right. Because if everybody agrees and we can put them on the stand and they all say, oh, yeah, you're not. Are we all understood? You're not supposed to do that. Well, then you can't do the thing if that's really what the world is like. I, I'm, I'm not sure I, I read uh, what was said um, and it's on our prior podcast, but it's not clear what was meant. I read it as lawyers find words in contracts that if, if you read them, they, they say something like they, it looks like it's, it's there, but they're like in the room, we knew that's not the way you were supposed to use it. Like now you're using it in a way in which some judge is going to be saying, well, you use the words, you must've meant it. Uh, and he's like, we knew it didn't mean that. And I mean, just to, to me, be clear, feels, that, sorry, sorry, sorry. I mean, to me, this feels a little bit like there was a, a great article I, re I read once. I don't remember who, who wrote it, but it was basically like lawyers tell stories about how contracts came to be, you know, as if something came from like the head of Zeus. I don't know who, who wrote that article, but the, <laughs> I sense that people have like, especially the, the drafters have these like valorizing stories. You know, we knew, we understood. You guys later are 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 the you know the Lilliputans who who don't understand the the genius that we had. If you had just asked us, we would have known. I, I mean, I just think this is nonsense talk. Like, I think that what Mark is saying has to be right, which is you know they they knew at some general level, but they also knew that if they interrogated any of the particular things, there'd be trouble. 
And the last thing they wanted to do was to get in the weeds and, and create problems where they knew that they were monsters. And so I just find the whole thing like extremely unlikely that any of the live disputes that we have today are ones that were resolvable by the smell of the room at the time the thing was drafted. I could be wrong. I mean, I don't know, but I don't know anything about anything, but I, I just have the sense from reading this article, which really did uh, influence me. I think it's called the hunt for Pari Pasu. Um, I think that article really did influence me and in how I thought about how drafters, especially these you know really sophisticated drafters act and think that all they're doing is just telling stories. Um, but I, you know, I, I, you guys are the experts, not I. Tess, is it the smell in the room? I, I mean, I think Dave is undoubtedly right that there are these myths that um, arise around provisions that have been used again and again and again. But there is also this sense that people seem to have, uh, maybe as a function of the myths, because they have stopped reading the provisions. They stopped reading them, you know, 40 years ago. And then what is it the investors or the party's understanding of like what they think the deal is? Uh, or is it like just reading it so like carefully like Harry Houdini? Well, wait, can I ask a question though? Because I think there's kind of two good faith, there's two possible levels of asking this good faith question and I, that I actually don't totally understand the distinction between. One is a question, one is a question where you basically have a good that the the violation of the duty of good faith and fair dealing, and that means that there's a breach of the contract. That's what we have in something like Fortune, right? Um, but I think that the thing that you're describing, the Harry Houdini situation, is a violation. Sorry, is a um, is an accusation by one of the parties that the other party is reading the language in bad faith, which that feels like a different. Like I don't think that that's a good faith. Doctrinally, I don't think that's a good faith question. I actually, I'm, now I stick back by my old point. I think, I think we're still, I think that you're still, you're kicked back, I think, into interpretation. And what you're saying is I'm arguing with you over the interpretation of this claw, of this term, of this text. I believe that you're arguing, I want to give evidence to the court that your interpretation, the, the interpretation you're offering is, is a sort of bad faith interpretation because, there's a, because there is a reality to the, there, there was a there there. There was something known, or at least it was known that that wasn't the interpretation. But I would take it that in, in some of these cases, the, it wouldn't be obvious that that the particular thing one side is arguing for as a, like a end as like a end matter like would be itself a bad faith breach. Is that does that make sense? It, it yeah, does. I mean, it, I, I, I'm sorry, Mark. Go on. No, no, no. Go it, it could be right. Like in principle conduct during the enforcement stage could be a violation, but it would take an awful lot. And this sounds um, this sounds like a question, just a, a fight over interpretation to me. Sorry, me too. Go ahead. I'm not. So that this is I, I guess I guess the question really is, um, can you make arguments about text with respect to interpretation? And I, I think this is what uh, um, Tess posed. Uh, Although then she said, this is interpretation, but I, I, I'm still confused. Like if I um, am super aggressive about like how I read a provision, like the at will provision, as in the first case uh, that we discussed, we talked about, uh, there is a level at which I am pushing that, that becomes uh, opportunistic. I am engaging in opportunistic reading of the contract and opportunism uh, in a way in which 
the other party would hope I would not behave seems like bad faith. Uh, but wait, but like the interpretation does they, they? I don't understand how that makes any difference. But doctrinally, I think that the way the court is policing that behavior is via sort of standard interpretive doctrines. So if you take it, if you think of a case like um, um, PG&E versus um, the drainage company, that uh, Dreyage, Thomas Dreyage, PG versus Thomas Dreyage, which is a case where there's a cl- where there's a clause that says um, that the one of the parties is going to indemnify the other party against all losses. It says all losses very clearly, and it turns out that the parties basically, and then um, the parties, it turns out, really thought that the all losses in this case meant third party losses, um, and instead the sort of claim is for a sort of second party loss, and so the. The argument from the plaintiff, I can't remember. The argument basically is you're trying to um, get me, to, you're trying to make me sort of pay this, pay this money because you think that I haven't, I have agreed to identify you against, because you're saying I've agreed to identify you against all losses, but I'm, t- but you know, you know, we actually agreed on something else. That's not the court. In some ways, in some ways, the court doesn't even want to engage in a good faith, bad faith analysis there, right? Good faith, bad faith is extremely unpleasant for the court to deal with because you have to deal with all this kind of, like, it sort of goes back to all this, like, intent questions. Instead, what the court says is, it sounds to me like one of you has some evidence about what this, what this term meant to you. And so now we're going to ha- go see if we can get some evidence. Now, when you guys talk about the smell of the room, I don't know how these deals go, but presumably people, if people thought that there was a way of interpreting this term, I don't know, maybe are they like taking notes or emailing people? Yeah. Like as a, as a, a contract person, I think, and, and my characterization, which Dave picked up on was not of what the, this investor person said. It was just my description of these complaints, which are quite standard made from the armchair. This is BS. Everybody knows that it means something else. When, in the event of litigation, there's not a shred of evidence that anybody actually thought it meant that thing. And I'm like, well, we don't need to, any recourse to the notion of good faith in a, a situation like this, right? We can resolve this purely through interpretive tools. And the complaint is not even, it's a rhetorical complaint. It's not actually a, a claim that triggers the, any kind of legal, legal concept of good faith. Me because too. we're we're gonna run out of time, I I'm hoping I can move to a couple of other questions we were hoping to ask you that that are related, and um, one question that I have that was spurred by hearing uh, our colleague uh, Minnesota Brian Bix talk about uh, contract law and uh, how we teach contract law in this. Uh, what he called, I, I th- I'm, I'm making up my own words in this utterly warped way as if the world is made up of dodos and unicorns. And um, he says, you know, we teach students, and he was referring to the, how we teach good faith, uh, about how, you know, courts, uh, people like Cardozo and uh, Posner in Market Street and um, the judges in Nanakuli, uh, they, they go out there and... Um, they protect people and they use good faith as a way of doing justice. Uh, and he's like, that's not how the world works. The vast majority of cases are there like, oh, you here's the explicit language, you're screwed, tough luck. Um, and I have this sense because I, I like those cases and I, I, I like those judges and I, I like their view of the world that there is this fail safe 
in the law that enables uh, protection and good things to be done. And that, you know, even Easterbrook's gonna stop Posner from doing something and vice versa. Is, what is your sense of, of this? And I, I had a very prominent M&A lawyer come to my contracts class recently. And he was talking about these cases, he calls them the words matter cases. And they're really tough cases where, you know, there you can see the uh, justice outcome and somebody gets screwed and the court's like, oh, those are the words on the paper, tough luck. Uh, we suspect that you meant something different, but you should have drafted better. And the students asked him, they're like, we just read Jacob and Young's and we just read uh, this, the, these other sort of cases where judges step in. And, and he's like, no, they teach you the wrong stuff in law school. And it seemed to channel Brian Biggs. So I went on too long. So uh, uh, this is a hard question that gets at like the heart of my dissatisfaction with the course um, and, and, and sort of yearly, I sort of try to struggle with it a little bit. So a, a couple of things. So, you know, it, it, it obviously is true that most um, litigated disputes are ones between super sophisticated parties because they're the only ones who have money to litigate. Um, and, and so it would be kind of unsurprising in that context if courts were like less if, if courts were not less sympathetic to the argument, you know, I, I didn't get what I bargained for. And so courts are probably more often pretty hard hearted in litigated disputes than than maybe in the cases that are in the casebook, in part because the cases in the casebook are supposed to be more interesting, are generally older. So uh, they're, they're smaller stakes. They're most likely to be individualized parties. They set the first principles. Um, and you don't really know, therefore, what would happen today if we had, a you know, a Dodo versus a unicorn, uh, both, I guess, imaginary is I think the theory of dodos are real and unicorns, I don't know. Um, so um, I, I think that like, there's just, it, it's pretty hard to say, you know, we know what happens in all the best possible world when the world we have is one where it's extraordinarily expensive to access the legal system. One. Two, actually, we don't even know what the legal system looks like because most things happen in state court. Most things are happening in small claims court. And in small claims court, which is where most contract disputes happen, I would just dare your M&A lawyer to come and tell me what's going to be the result of individualized disputes. I have no idea and neither does he. You know, so it could be that courts are are hard-heartedly, you know, in the in the um, uh, Willistonian tradition, giving people formal contract law. It could be that they're giving people, um, you know, the the realism tradition. You know, it could be they're just like you know chopping up the bait and giving half to each side. No one knows, and so. Like my big picture view about contract law is like just this general sense of humility. I know nothing about what courts do, and neither do you. Uh, neither does anyone. Um, and just to be just to be fair, you know that all said, you know there's obviously some truth here, right? And the truth is, most contracts that people are subject by, they 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 take what they're given. Uh, and so, you know, most consumer contracts, you get what you get and you don't get upset because there's no real alternative. And that's also going to be true in large contracts as well. And so, what's the point of all of these contextual uh, uh, doctrines, you know, what work do they do? You know, does good faith play any real role in the world? And, you know, I think it's just, um, I, I think, you know, as a, as a, as a, like a died, a, a real died in the wool realist, um, you know, I guess I'd say that the, the fact that we teach them in law school matters to what judges do. Like, I, I think that the, the legal consciousness is, is trained to say, like, there are going to be some extraordinary cases where this set of interpretive tools should have purchase 
they should look and feel a little bit like the cases you learned in law school. You know, you guys apparently learned fortune. It was there lurking in the back of your head somewhere, waiting for the moment where you became judges and could use the thing in the moment. And I, I don't, I think that it, um, legal education is constitutive, like to use too, fam too fancy a word. It creates its own reality and, and the, the teaching of the cases matters to the extraordinary moment where those cases sort of come up in, in the course of a judge's career, even if it's true that most of the disputes are not like that in federal court to the extent that federal court is representative of anything. So that's my, that's, that's the way I sort of feel better about myself as a teacher of contract law um, without really having any knowledge of what the world looks like, which is one of my real strengths. It's just to, the other place that we see that, that we see this in the in the casebook again, obviously, I don't know anything about the real world, although I did get hearing um, uh, me too and Mark talk about the real world in some of the sort of prep materials for this. Um, the other place I think you do that, I'm, or I guess I'm asking you all uh, sort of empirically if this is the case, is that you see good faith um, questions in, in cases with conditions. Especially where the con especially where there's an express condition that something has someone has to agree to something, or approve something. This strikes me as I mean, so we're, I know we've been talking about the implied duty of good faith, but in those conditions cases, the duty seems a little bit more like front and center, because there really is an argument over whether or not you're not approving, whether or not you have sort of failed to negotiate or failed right whether. But I take it that there, the question is actually is, is pretty meaty and that the court doesn't have tons of, well, I shouldn't say, it's a little harder for the courts to be like, eh, you didn't, the fact that you didn't agree, it was a pure option, you're out, right? I, th I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And I think, too, one of the ways I think about this is that sometimes these substantive claims, even if we have no real idea what courts do with them or how they influence the course of litigation, they give rise to new kinds of procedural rights and leverage. And that's something I've been thinking about, not to make this really about sovereign debt, but in this context, you know, um, the heart of good faith is that the, the intent of the person who did the supposedly bad thing suddenly becomes very relevant. And intent is, generally speaking, just kind of unimportant in our world. But if I, as a claimant, if we're thinking that it's a, a government that maybe has acted in a way that's inconsistent with the duty of good faith, if I have the right to you know, demand the deposition of the minister of finance now, that's actually an extraordinarily valuable procedural right, because probably they're not going to show up and then I get an adverse inference or they're going to show up. And I bet, you know, Axel Kisilov, the but he's not the finance minister anymore, but like, I bet he's a shitty deponent, to be frank. Um, so I, I, I do wonder about handing parties uh, this new set of discovery and other procedural rights that come with a, a claim that's so focused on intent. I don't know if that, that is in part an answer to why this might matter in the real world, but it seems to me that it could. I don't know. That wasn't a question. That was my musings. Um, but we have kept you guys for a very, very long time. So um, you could just say that my musings were, you, you could endorse my musings, or you could say that that was all BS. Um, but uh, one way or the other, we're super thrilled that we were able to get you to come on. Yes, thank you so much. This, is, this was incredible. We, you, we are such big fans of yours. And uh, 
getting to talk to you about this question, these these questions that we're we're so confused about, yet we think it is. I hope this is true that it's okay to reveal our lack of knowledge and our confusion. And uh, your being here, we we hope validates that it's okay to be uh, confused about them. But we're we're hoping also you will do some episodes of Promises, Promises that follow, that will uh, continue in the conversation about what does the, what do these two idiots, Mark and me too, really need to learn about good faith? I mean, as, as you know me too, you're one of our recurring tropes on, on Promises, Promises. We see you as both our ideal audience and also our, our foil for so many of these conversations. So there's no way we wouldn't continue to talk about you. And now we know Mark I'm has, has these two. Yes. Yeah, really our only audience, it's true. Um, uh, so, but so grateful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting us. Thanks everybody.